suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. In some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. This is episode number 120 with Brian Fleming. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. Once again, my name is Dave Brown. I'm here with my partner and co-host, Barbara Allen. And before we get into today's episode and interview, I just want to share something with you um, really cool that Barbara and I got to experience yesterday in New York City for Veterans Day. Uh, We were invited to come down to be a part of the live audience for Fox & Friends, and we we got to watch 12 uh, immigrant veterans become U.S. citizens yesterday in a, in a ceremony outside of uh, Fox News studios. Uh, and it was incredibly moving and emotional. It was, it was really cool. Uh, these are 12 men and women who've been serving in the armed forces, protecting our freedoms and opportunities without even being citizens yet. Uh, one Jamaican immigrant uh, was serving uh, in the army for decades and finally decided yesterday uh, to become a U.S. citizen. And it was very emotional for him. He he was crying. Uh, He was saying how the flag meant everything to him. Um, And it just struck me that, you know, 12 men and women, and there's more of them right out there who are serving our country without even being citizens yet. These 12 men and women came to this country because of what it represents, because of the freedoms and opportunities that we have here. And there were before even becoming citizens, they were willing to fight for those same freedoms and opportunities. And, you know, a lot of us, not all of us, but many of us, because we're natural born citizens, we take those freedoms and opportunities for granted. Uh, While all of our veterans, right, they're the ones who are on the front lines fighting for our freedom, fighting for everything that makes America great, fighting for the American dream, All the men and women who serve, serve to protect those freedoms, serve to defend the homeland, serve to defend the American dream. And I just want to encourage you to use us kind of as a rallying call to not take those things for granted, to live a more fulfilled life, to go after what it is that you want, to live your own version of the American dream, while always remembering those who serve and those who've sacrificed for those freedoms and opportunities. So that brings us to today's interview with Brian Fleming. Brian is a combat wounded Afghanistan war veteran. He's an inspirational speaker and resilience trainer who helps people be more resilient in tough and turbulent situations. Uh, He was severely wounded in action by a suicide bomber who exploded three feet away from him while he was in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And now he teaches strategies for overcoming unexpected challenges. Brian believes there's a way around everything, and it's a person's responsibility to go get the outcomes that they want in life. He spent the past decade using his own experience to help teach others the key concepts of resiliency through his books and live presentations. Brian has spoken to over a half million people and live audiences across the world in 42 U.S. states, seven countries, and four continents. And he's been featured on every major news network in the United States on that topic. Listen in as Brian uh, not only shares his insight, 
but also some of the more personal side of himself uh, that he doesn't always get to share uh, while on stage. So without further ado, here's Barbara Allen with Brian Fleming. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen. I am here today with Purple Heart recipient, Brian Fleming. You may have heard of him as the blown up guy, which is sounds like kind of a joke, but isn't really a joke. It's a true thing, uh, a true story that he has used to teach people lessons that he has learned the hard way. He's all about gratitude and service and sacrifice and resilience and the fact that he is taking the time out of his busy schedule today to sit down with us, to trust us with his story, to share his story and his message with our community here at American Snippets is something we are deeply grateful for. Brian, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it is, it's always a, a great to connect with people who are excited about you know, this country and their path and their mission and their purpose and whose purpose aligns with ours. So let's get into it, man. Are you good? Absolutely. Okay. So we'll talk, we'll go into your service and then backwards and what led you. I've watched some of your interviews. I've heard your talks, you know, I've dug into what you do. So I'm familiar with a bunch of pieces of your story, but let's go a little into it for people who may not be. Okay. You served uh, in, in infantry, in the combat infantry yeah. division, and you were in Afghanistan when you were, when you were injured. Yeah, I was a team leader in, in an infantry platoon with the Army's 10th Mountain Division in 2006 in Afghanistan. 2006 in Afghanistan. Okay, what led you, what led you first off to, to go into service? Well, there's, there's a surface level answer and then there's a deeper yeah. level answer. Let's go deep, man. Let's go deep. <laughs> okay, well, I'll give you the obvious one. Okay. Uh, I joined in 2003, so it was a couple of years after 9-11 okay. in Afghanistan already. I did really well in high school. Not because I was smart, because I was always like a C student, but I basically had straight A's through high school. And that's because I really wanted something academically that only good grades could get me. And um, I learned how to game the system, honestly. I learned what I need okay. to do in class. And I'm like, hey, it got me what I needed. And then come the, the end of 12th grade and uh, the beginning of 12th grade, the first uh, week, and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm, I, I'm so burned out with studying. I, I don't want to go straight into four college. I need to jump on some airplanes, blow some stuff up, maybe shoot some machine guns. <laughs> I needed to like have a pause before I jump into that. Yeah. Well, I went into the Army's infantry and, uh, you know, obviously wanted to, you know, do my part and protect our country. You know, one of the big things is I never wanted anyone to be able to ever look at me and say, you know, you have this great life in America because somebody else allowed you to have that. And that's not against anyone who never served. We all have our, our place in this world at different times. But for me, it was like, I've been around to so many other countries in the world. Even at that time early on in my life, I've been to many foreign countries and there are a lot of good places in the world, but there are a lot of places people just don't even know exist or how life is there. And I know how life could be. I could have been born in another country, but I was lucky to be born here. And so that's the surface level answer. The deeper answer, you know, growing up, I, I never really had a positive male role model in my life. And I didn't learn this till I was about 28, 29, 30 years old. I realized the real reason I joined the army. And it was trying to answer a question that I think subconsciously I knew, but consciously I wasn't realizing. And that was the question of like, am I a real man? Like, do I have what it takes to, to really take control of life? 
because I didn't really know what a man was, really didn't have a lot of that model for me. And, uh, but I had to know. And I think in my mind and deep in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, if I go into the military and I fight in the war, at the very least, that will make me a man. <laughs> that might sound really elementary. And number yeah. one, that doesn't, that's not, that one thing does not make you a man. It doesn't not make you a man, but it right. does, that alone doesn't make you a man. Um, but in my mind, I had nothing else to go off of. And I, it just, I had to know that I had what it took to do something with my life that mattered. And I had to prove that to myself. And so yeah. that was probably the deeper reason. What had led you to travel to so many foreign countries? I had done uh, like some humanitarian work, missions trips, things like that. And, um, you know, I'd been to like Brazil, I'd been to South Korea, I'd been to Mexico. I'd, you like know, with I'd, a school program or just on your programs, own? Youth groups, you know, things like that. That was your own idea? You just decided to, that, I find this so interesting, you know, I, I yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I love traveling and seeing the world. And when I picked, the first time I picked to go to New Zealand, I didn't even know where it was. Like after I chose, I'm like, I'm going there because I've never heard of it. I actually had to find it on a map. This is before like Google. Like, before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I got off the Atlas, you know, the, the random, you know, like all the map. And I'm like, wow, where's New Zealand? Oh, it's yeah. just off the coast of Australia. Okay. And I thought that might be cool. So what'd you do in New Zealand? Oh, it, it and was, how old like, were you when you went? I was 16, 16 or 17 when I went. And it was with, a, it was like with a youth, um, like a youth missions organization at the time. And so it was like short-term, you know, humanitarian trips and outreach, things like that. What did you take away from that? Like as a 16-year-old going to another country to serve others? We live in a big world full of a lot of different people. And, uh, you know, despite our differences, it's like we're, we're more alike than we are different. You know, if we can just manage to stop trying to kill each other. Yeah, that would be that would be a really good first step. <laughs> yeah. That's a good place to start. <laughs> like we don't have to agree, but like, dang, we can still, you know, I'm, I'm friends with people who don't believe how I do and they see things differently. Okay, well, let's focus on what we do have in common because there's actually a lot more of that, I think. Yes, I, I love that you said that. We're absolutely going to circle back to that a little later. Uh, so, okay, so you go into the military straight out of high school. And what is your first experience in service? In the military. I, I, I arrived at my first unit as the brand new lower ranking enlisted guy. Must have been awesome. Yeah, we had second infantry division in South Korea, good old Camp Casey. And it was the night of Christmas Eve. So there was like a two week block of vacation time. And a lot of these guys didn't get to go home because it's a restricted tour. You can't bring your spouse. A lot of them didn't go home. So it was pretty much, just to be honest, two weeks of drunkenness. And I'm the new guy. I arrived at like one in the morning, the night of Christmas Eve, jet lagged from America to Seoul, South Korea, and then two hours north on a bus. And I'm the new guy. Oh, it was just the whole like messing with the everything else. I played it cool. It was a good time. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting experience. It was probably, you know, negative 20 outside. It's, it's like Arctic in that country. And it's crazy. Like, all right then. So that was my so, first experience in the was, unit. Yeah. Before that was basic training and all that entails. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so then you ultimately wind up being deployed. How many times were you deployed? I was deployed just once. Just once. And yeah, oh, you, that's how I lasted. You, you certainly packed a lot into that deployment, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it was eventful. Yeah. Were you married when you deployed? 
Yeah, actually, my wife and I got married uh, three months before I deployed. So we got married in December. I deployed in March. Where were you stationed at, at that point? I was stationed. Yeah, I was stationed at uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. Okay. Is that Which actually it made me really happy I was going to Afghanistan because I hated living in Louisiana. <laughs> Nothing against the Louisiana people, but but uh, boy, that's uh, oh, yeah, it was it was kind of rough. You know the what did you hate about it? Super humid. I mean, the people and the food were excellent. That Louisiana has on its side, but boy, the weather and the, the climate sometimes I just it wasn't one of my favorite places. It's not your jam. Is that where your wife is from? No, my wife is actually from Fort Worth, Texas. We actually met on the internet and talked for like a year or so and then ended up getting married. Love it. Love it. I met my fiance on match. So, you know, okay. I, we're proof of concept. It works, right? And, you know, for a lot of people, it does. It's amazing yeah. how many people I meet where that's how it worked. And my wife and I, we're about to celebrate 14 years in marriage. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And that's the case with a lot of people. Yeah, that's a gift. And I know people knock it or the, I, I don't think it's as stigmatized as it used to be. But at one point. No, not not like back in 2004 when her and I met on a pen pal website. On a pen pal website. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a pen pal website. I, I, I just I just going through a breakup and so did she. I wasn't even looking for anybody. What is it? What is a pen pal website? We're going to get into the meat of things, but I love these. Things, right? <laughs> what What is a pen pal? Well, website? nowadays you might call it like match.com. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what, like, what did you in 2004? What did that look like? Like, oh, I just, I was just looking up. I love meeting people from other cultures and countries. And, yeah. you know, then I saw, cause I'm from Michigan originally. And I saw she's from Texas and that's where I live now. And it's sort of like its own country anyway. Yeah. And so I thought, Hey, that's, Here you know, its own thing. And so, yeah, we just started chatting, talking and, you know, like when, online chatting back and forth. Yeah. It was emails and then it was Yahoo messenger back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. And then we eventually started, you know, talking on the phone. That's so cool. Oh, yeah. you're, you're one of the pioneers of online dating. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, even mean, didn't even mean to. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Well, you're a pioneer in many areas, apparently. You don't always, you've stumbled into a lot of things you didn't necessarily mean to stumble into, but they've all led to greater purposes and great paths for you. Yeah, you learn a lot of lessons when you hit every branch on the way down when you fall out of a tree. Yes, you do, don't you? You do. So, okay, then, so you're married for three months and you you're deployed. So your wife, does she stay on her own? Does she move back to family? Like how does that? She tried to stay on her own, but yeah. just being so lonely, you know, being yeah. Louisiana, she went back to, uh, you know, Texas where her family was. Texas. And okay. yeah, her mother was living in Phoenix at the time as well. So she went out there. She just kind of kept, kept herself all over. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to be the spouse of someone, you know, in service in the military and they're gone all the time. Uh, oh yeah. You have kids, you don't have kids and you have that fear the uncertainty and you all can't really talk about what you're doing. And maybe you don't necessarily want to talk about, you know, what you're doing when you call home and the two different clashes of needs when you do communicate. It's, it's very underrated by people who have not lived it and experienced well, it. I always say the military spouses and kids are probably the most overlooked demographic in the military veteran community. I'm grateful. There's so many resources for guys like me who are quote unquote wounded warriors, which I don't even know if I like that term anymore, but we won't go yeah. there. But, um, <laughs> you know, the families, I mean, we're starting to see more programs for the families. But what people don't realize is that, like you just said, like the spouse fights their own battle. They're, yeah. they're growing and evolving as a person while you're gone. And so they're changing and you're changing based on your experiences. They're yeah. doing the same. Your kids and you come back and now you have to get all this stuff to mesh together somehow. And 
I mean, that's, that's just, I mean, you're begging for conflict and, and you've got to be ready for that stuff. And one of the big things I see, and I say this all the time, I do resilience training for the military. One of the things is that the military trains us how to fight and win wars, how to win battles on the battlefield. But when we come home, nobody trains us to take those same principles and concepts right. and apply it to our lives. Like the enemy isn't Taliban anymore. It's this idea in your head that your spouse is like your ex. And that if she says something, she means this when you actually haven't communicated or it's your, your kids doing something or it's this anxiety that you never had before. There's new enemies and it's a new battlefield. Yeah. You know, the terrain is different. All these elements of a battlefield, they change, but nobody, nobody teaches us how to take what we already know about winning on the battlefield and apply it to our daily life and our families. And as a result, you see an overwhelming amount of uh, military families being destroyed by divorce. And yeah. it, it's, it's, I think a lot of it's preventable. Uh, we just, we aren't taking what we already know and applying it to life. And if we did, a lot of us military veterans would be a lot better off and so are our families. Yeah. And it's a strain as well. I know a lot of, you know, even full-time active duty military members, it's definitely an underpaid um, career, you know, path, you know? <laughs> that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so being like, I, my husband was national guard, so we didn't, move from base to base to base. But on the outset, we didn't have that community of people who understood. I was just oh, yeah. on my own, surrounded by people who are complaining that their husband, you know, wants to do another project around the house or snores too much. And, you know, and I'm on my own with the kids Sounds rough. Yeah. trying to pack a kid on my back and mow the yard and go shopping, you know, like, and nobody understood what that was like. And then you still have the financial struggles as well. So it's, mm. and it's not, this is like not to complain or, you know, woe is us or whatever, but it is something I think people should go into with their eyes open and their hearts and minds open to learning from others. And, and I love that so many veterans are coming back now to mentor those, you know, in that path and help on, on the way out, because it's like you, you're taking human beings and putting them in a system that you all are being, you know, sent out to do things that are unnatural to your, you know, morals and humans that, you know, like you, you're just breaking you down, building you up, and then sending you back all shifted and changed with no support. Like you, just, I always say, it's like a puzzle that fits together, and then you're just scraping some edges off and making changing the pieces, but then trying to cram the same shifted pieces back in the same puzzle. Yeah, so, square peg, round hole, sledge. Yeah. Uh, so I love that. I love that you all are there now, coming together, and like you said, there's more organizations and more support come out there for the veterans. Definitely, in the military spouse community is stepping up hugely as well to, to see that. So that's cool. Um, what is one thing while we're on the topic, what is one thing you would maybe advise to somebody who is in service now and about to transition out? Find your next mission before yeah. you get out. Yeah. That's one of the biggest things. I mean, we always have a mission in the military. There's always something to be done. You know your place, your position, what your roles and responsibilities are, what's expected of you, the standards, and you get out and suddenly you have to make the missions now and do all the grunt work top to bottom. It's not like you have the battalion commander passing down the mission to your, your platoon leader and your, your, you know, your platoon sergeant and then disseminating that information and everybody knows their place and why it matters as it makes its way in alignment up to the greater mission. You get out and it's like, guys, just like nobody, I don't think really teaches us, hey, find your next mission. Because if you don't have a mission in life, you're just, you're just kind of existing. And that leads, as we know, to all kinds of 
depression and anxiety and meaninglessness and literally existential crises and things that just bring people down. And then they start medicating with drinking and, you know, every other thing out there you could abuse that they probably abuse while they were in the military. <laughs> and so you just have no accountability now, you know. Yeah. You go from a very structured system with a, with a very clear mission. You always know what the mission is. You get out and you don't know the mission. And uh, that can be a really bad place. And even if you know it when you get out, five years after that, you might, you might drift and just, you know, lose sense of your mission. So you have to constantly make these mid-course corrections and, and asking, what is my next mission? And part of that is being around people. We have a chain of command in the military. Establish a personal chain of command. People that you can look up to, who they're where you want to be, let them guide you. People on the same path as you, they're the same rank, so to speak. They're going in the same direction. I mean, I know people who are also speakers. You know, some are above me, some are at my level. Some are newer and below me in that sense, as far as experience level. Well, I can contribute to the ones who are lower. And not only does that help them, but it gives me a great sense of meaning and purpose that I'm doing something good in the world. But also I can learn from people like Dave, for example. We talked yeah. about my original mentor, Dave Reaver. You know, I, I never would have gotten into the speaking thing unless he said, Brian, I'll show you how to do something with this injury if you're open. And so he sort of took on the, a superior role in that chain of command in my life. And nobody taught me that. It was just inherent in me. But if I would have known to plan these things out ahead of time, boy, that battle plan would have made my life a lot easier. And that's actually something I'm going to start teaching pretty soon, but we'll get to that. Yeah, we will get to that. And actually, in your case, you maybe thought that you had more time before you had to restructure your purpose and your mission, right? So let's talk. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't expect some things to happen. You didn't expect, yeah. So your, you know, your own mission was cut much shorter than you, you know, anticipated it would be. And you mentioned Dave Reaver talking about your injury. So this seems like a good time to go into talking about what happened there in Afghanistan. Yeah, I deployed in March of 2006 with the 10th Mountain Division. And um, about a month after we arrived, our vehicle ran over our first IED. And it was my vehicle, a double stack of anti-tank mines that were buried in the road. It blew it up, set it on fire. It was about seven o'clock in the morning in the Argandab Valley. And um, after it happened, I was able to actually physically get out unharmed. Uh, I drug one of the other guys out who was partially conscious and there was, you know, starting to catch on fire. He was under, he, the, the explosion had gone off underneath his seat, which I was in one back seat. He was in the other. So the back tire ran over and, and so we were able to get him out and, uh, two of the guys were injured, both returned to duty a month later. So thankfully nobody died there. Then a couple months later, I was, uh, man, this is a, I think it's a funny thing now. I was on my way to reclass my job from infantry to what's called EOD. Oh, yeah. Explosive ordnance disposal. It's the bomb squad. If it blows yeah. up, it's their business. Yeah. If you see that guy running, you better be in front of him. And so it's that kind of thing. And I had this little error on my medical record. It said P3, which means I was physically unfit for active duty, which is weird because I've been running up and down mountains, getting shot at and fighting Taliban for five months. I was in the best shape of my life. And so I had to get that fixed because I couldn't continue on with that process. I had to go from our base at Fob Lagman in Kalat, Afghanistan, two hours south to Kandahar Airfield to get reevaluated by the doctor, get it taken off. We got two miles from the front gate to Kandahar Airfield and a white minivan pulled out in front of my vehicle. We didn't think anything of it. We didn't know 
what was happening. Well, he was going slow. So my driver passed him on the left and I was in the front passenger seat. So as you're, as you're driving, you're passing somebody on the left going down the highway, you can probably just about reach your arm out the window and almost touch their vehicle. You're only a couple of feet away. As we got right up next to this vehicle, as we're driving right up next to it, you know, the whole minivan exploded and it was being driven by a suicide bomber. And that day he blew himself and his van into about 10 million pieces right there in the street. And uh, I woke up in a ditch on the side of the road right there on the side of Highway 1. And uh, I was, I had blood pouring out of my face. I didn't know what happened. I thought we were in a gunfight, but I couldn't find my weapon. Uh, it was still in the vehicle, it turned out. And, you know, it had blown us about 30 feet off the side of the road. And I had no idea what had happened. I had a full face and neck second degree burn, which is now healed. And my, both my hands were third degree burns. Um, you know, the, you know, my, my driver actually got me out of the vehicle. I later learned, uh, he was able to drag me out and also drag my gunner out who was peppered with shrapnel. A 19 year old kid lost his right eye due to shrapnel. Oh man. And he got us out. He called in the nine line medevac, like literally saved our lives. And I mean, was a, a true hero in the worst conditions that he was trained to operate in. He, he operated flawlessly. And so I'm, I'm here because of him today. And the helicopter came down about 30 minutes later, which is pretty fast actually for getting wheels up onto a, onto a site to, to do a medevac. And it, it was coming down. And I don't know if you know the rotor wash, you know, is all the wind that the propellers of a helicopter kicks up. Well, it basically throws everything everywhere. If it's not anchored to the ground, well, we were in a desert. And so we're sitting there, we're about 50, you know, hundred feet from the landing zone. And, you know, we're looking at the chopper coming down and all of a sudden, whoosh, I mean, we got sandblasted and, you know, I, my face was burned off second degree and I got all this sand, this gust right in my face. And, you know, I was that all like implanted in your room. In addition to everything else. Yeah. yeah. It was like one of those days when you wake up uh, and have, wake up and have a bad year. It was one yeah. of those. <laughs> yeah. It was also kind of like, you kind of look at the sky and you're like, really? Like all this and now just, okay. You know, so that hurt, but they got me back. <laughs> and, um, I spent 14 months at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, burn treatment, reconstructive surgery, rehabilitation, occupational physical therapy, um, then all the head stuff, you know, for the traumatic brain injury, the mild one that I had, and, uh, and all the rest. But, uh, you know, I'm still here. The only guy to die that day was uh, the suicide bomber, which is why my Purple Heart license plate on my truck says, nice try. Just like... <laughs> What else do you say to a guy who does that? And he was the only one who died. I mean, he, he accomplished his mission, sort of. And so I'm like, hey, I'm still here. And uh, life is good. I've never had a better life since all that went bad. It just it opened up so many opportunities for me to learn and grow as a person. It's provided, you know, I met Dave because of that. And yeah. And launched me into speaking and the career and the mission, the life mission I'm now on, that I never would have discovered or known had I not gone through all that. Right. So... Talk for a little bit about that time in the hospital and the recovery. Um, you know, I am imagining there are moments that were difficult to say the least. Um, yeah. You know, and how do you push through that? What was the support system like there? Well, I mean, some people say, you know, when I, when I tell them some of the stories I'm about to tell you, they say, Brian, how did you get through such painful times in your life? My answer is, there's nothing special about me. Like when you get burnt or you get hurt so badly that um, you don't die, 
you just have to deal with it. Like, well, Brian, how did you get through all of that? Well, I didn't die. I mean, physically, if we're talking physical, I didn't die. So I just had to endure the pain. I didn't have a choice. When I got to the medical center that night, three days after the explosion, three days ago from Kandahar to San Antonio. And so I applaud the military, the medevac system, the whole medical community there. They did awesome. They got me home. They took care of me. But what happened when I arrived at Brook Army Medical Center was they said, hey, we need to take him into the shower room and clean him up. And I had been burned severely. And I thought, okay, great. I'm like, great. I hadn't showered in like a week and it was like 130 in Kandahar. So I'm like, finally, I'm getting a shower. Well, they get me, they get me in there. They lay me on this table. I mean, you know, they're spraying me off with water. And about three nurses are standing there. And the head nurse looks at me and he says this. He said, uh, Sergeant Fleming, we're going to do this as quickly as possible. So it'll be as painless as possible. And I had no idea what he was talking about. But it was at that moment, him and about three other nurses all pulled out razor blades and they had to start shaving and, and tearing that burn charred skin off my hands and my face and my neck while I was still awake and conscious. And they can't push you out for it because if they, they usually have to do it multiple times and they have to, if they put you under anesthesia multiple times, they, they have a great fear that you'll slip into a coma and you won't wake up. And so they said they'll do it as fast as possible. Uh, it seemed like an eternity to me. Uh, turns out, I think it, it took about 30 minutes, I was told. Ugh, that's a long time, though. Uh, it, was, it was hell. And I have friends, I mean, I was only burned on probably about 15% of my body, which is still bad. But I have friends in there who were burned all the way up to 80, 90 plus. One guy was 97% third degree. Wow. And so I can't, I can't hold a candle to that. I can't tell you what it was like for them. I know my own experience was, was pure hell. I can't imagine how much worse theirs was. But uh, that was the medical center, and I spent the next 14 months there. So when your wife got to come to the hospital to mm-hmm. see you, right? Yeah. How, you know, does she share what that is like? I mean, not to speak for her, but, you know, because, you know, Dave Reaver talks about his story in the hospital of mm-hmm. when the spouses would come. I mean, did you have any of that concern, like, you know, this, or was it just... Never. Yeah. And you, no, I, I never questioned it. In fact, when I got to the hospital she kissed my bloody face and I told her, you don't have to kiss me. It's gross. You're here. I get it. Show it up. What's really, you know, what's really amazing though, people don't know this. Um, me and David have, we've had these conversations. Mine and Jamie's story is so parallel to his and Brenda's story, yeah. just different wars. Right. And it's funny because I told you, I met my wife on the internet after getting home from South Korea it turns out, it turned out when Dave came to speak at the medical center one day, about five months after my injury, the, uh, the first time I met him, she went up to him and said, hey, you know my grandfather. Come on. <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, a lot of people yeah. say, you know, they know who. And she said, well, what's your grandfather's name? And she told him. And he goes, no way. Turns out her grandfather, well, they're both, they were both preachers. Dave still is. And his father was a preacher. His, him and his father had done, you know, church and ministry work for decades with my wife's grandfather. And they only live about five miles apart on the West side of Fort Worth, Texas, in a little town called Azel. That's so cool. Azel Springtime. And they'd known each other for decades. And so when we met Dave, it was like, wow, that's a really, 
weird connection. Like what a, what an odd, you know, with such strong family ties from the past, yeah. but I didn't know Dave and I didn't know that she, you know, <laughs> right. so, you know, there was something, a higher connection there. I, I believe that was taking place. And, you know, so you know, Jamie really, she knew of growing, she grew up knowing Dave's story. Okay. And I think Brenda, Dave's wife, actually modeled so much of what a wife needed to be if you're in a tough situation. Right. And so, I mean, literally, Jamie had grown up knowing, well, Brenda was there for Dave and everything, and they were always there for each other, and they still are. Yeah. That's so cool. So, so then that's how you met Dave. And Dave Reber, well, just for anybody who may not have heard of him who is listening, he was in Vietnam, and his story is freaking ridiculous like a grenade was shot out of his hand and um i don't know how he lived through that his injuries were so severe i don't know how many times he was pronounced dead or thought but anyway yeah his story of recovery is something everybody should hear we were lucky to interview him back uh earlier on in american snippets and he speaks all over the world now and shares his story he's gone back to vietnam and done amazing things there such a cool guy, such an amazing guy. And how awesome, like if you had to find anybody to mentor you through something, I mean, it like, been him. but I didn't choose it. Like he and I, crossed exactly, we, exactly. We, we, yeah. we like ran into each other and you know what the big key was? And there's a good lesson here. Yeah. A lot of, you hear a lot of military guys and women, we all do it. Yeah. We'll say things like, well, I know I need help or something, but Nobody understands me, therefore they can I was just going to say that. And it's the biggest yeah. crock of crap you've ever heard. Yep. But here's, what's, here's what they're really saying. So I've learned a ton of great things from people who can't relate to me. You know, that's a different perspective is yeah. actually what helps you find the answer you're looking for in a lot of cases. But here's why I clicked with Dave. There are, there are two things that I believe every good mentor has at the very beginning when you're getting mentored. There's connection and there's credibility. Connection is when you can look at somebody and say, that person understands, like that person gets me. Like they understand what I'm going through. Dave had been hospitalized at Brook Army Medical Center 40 years earlier, yeah. same hospital. Yep. But there's also another piece, there's connection. That's the emotional thing. This guy understands me, they can empathize. But then there's the credibility piece, which says, because I looked at Dave and said, he's been here right in my shoes where I'm at right now. But he didn't stay there. He's been married for decades now. He's very successful in, in his career. He's made a, an amazing life for himself and has impacted millions and millions and millions, untold millions yeah. of lives for the better. And I thought, without even knowing it, I thought, you know, if that guy can get through all that, I think I can too. And it's the connection and credibility. I knew he understood how I felt and he didn't stay there. So he can show me how to get out of this, if anybody. Yeah. And that is true. And there's people, um, you know, no matter what situation you're in, if you find people who've been through the same thing, it doesn't mean you're going to connect with them personally. No. And a good point there. Yes. And you make a a great point. And here's the thing. I, I, I know a lot of guys all across every branch of the military, whether they're regular military special operations or not, one thing you'll find with a lot of people is they'll only want to hang out. Like I have, I have a, a buddy named Chad who I wrote a book with and uh, he's another amazing success story, but he was, he had people connecting him with a few other people who had been in special operations like he had. And what he found was 
a lot of them were dealing with a lot of the same issues he was, and they didn't have any more solutions than he did. Right. Yep. But then he met a guy down in Houston, Texas, who was the furthest thing from a warfighter, furthest thing from a special operations guy, never in the military, about five foot three or five foot five. I mean, soaking wet, probably weighs 130 pounds. You know, a guy who's the furthest thing away of what he was. And that was the guy who helped him save his marriage, figure himself out mentally, put his mind back together. And now Chad is one of the most successful organizations for veterans, literally in America, the most effective one I've ever been a part of. And so that all came about because he met a guy who looked, if he would have looked over and he would have said, no, he doesn't get me. <laughs> and he would have lost out. Yeah. His, his family would have lost out. It's so, so cool how that works, isn't it? <laughs> like you can, a, so you can be thrust in the, you know, in a situation with people who have gone through, so, and nobody goes through exactly like the same thing, but close enough is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and think like, oh my gosh, okay, they're going to get me. But either they may not get you or they get you, but they're not ready to heal. They're not ready to push through, you know, like, so maybe they do get you, but they're, they're just not there where they're going to move forward. And if you connect with them, they're going to hold you back. Right. Or you find the people who have been through something similar and are like, let's get out of this stuff together. Right. So you have to just, yeah. it's like not an assumption. And I, I made a mistake, you know, when I was widowed and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm with 800 other widows. We're all going to be best friends. Oh, how? no, no. How'd that work out Not so good. Not so good, man. You know, yeah. if you're, you probably got more hate from some of those widows than you got from anybody. If, if your experience yes. is like mine with some veterans, not most, but some. Yes, I have. Just more. like in, in any life, I have got, uh, you know, a lot of um, unanticipated, say, experiences from those people that I thought that I was going to instantly be friends with, you know. But yeah. I've had some great ones, too. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the game. Yeah. But this is what I say to any anyone in the military who has that mindset that, hey, if you weren't there, you can't help me. I had it for a time. I didn't even know I really had it. But here's, here's what I equate that to. When we were living in the mountains in Afghanistan, hunting Taliban, that was our mission. Our job was to find them, capture, or kill. That was infantry. That's your job. Yeah. And so the thing about it is we had close air support on him for a lot of those missions. Not all of them. And close air support, if you don't know, those are helicopters and gunships and warplanes that are flying above your battlefield that can reinforce you and help you destroy the enemy. Now, let me ask you this. If we ran into a situation that was more than my 17-man platoon could handle, maybe 200 Taliban, I don't know, 300, any situation that we couldn't handle or wasn't ideal for us or could be destructive. The thing about close air support is not only can they come across and help us defeat the enemy, they have a totally different perspective of our battlefield. Mm -hmm. They can see our battlefield from a perspective that we can't, and they can see things we can't. They can say, hey, don't go over this mountaintop. There's like, there's a whole camp of like 100 Taliban there. Don't go there. Well, we wouldn't have known that if we wouldn't have had air support. But how dumb would it be if we were in a a firefight with a superior enemy? Maybe Maybe they're up in elevated positions and they're greater in numbers and we're in a bad spot. And the leader is told, hey, we need to call an air support. But the leader says, no, let's not use it. We don't want our command to think we can't handle this situation on our own. That leader would probably die or his men would die. And he'd probably get relieved of his duties and fired immediately upon return if he came back. Because that's called stupid. (laughs) And you don't do it. 
Yeah. And But it's no different in our lives. Yeah. People who haven't experienced what we've experienced, sometimes that lack of experience that's similar to our own actually gives them a perspective that allows them to see something that we didn't see and other people who have been where we've been, they didn't see either. And sometimes that's your ticket out. Yeah, that is a really great way, great way of putting it. Man, you almost cheat. You have so many great analogies just because you've been in the I'm just saying. <laughs> <just> say <laughs> Those are our acronyms. Yeah, I know. I know. That's so cool, though. But that's good. And you know what? Not everybody can take those experiences and relate them in such a way. And to so it is a, a good combination. And that's one of the most concise ways that I've heard it explained. And I've spoken to a great many, uh, you know, veterans. Um, because I get to do cool things like that. But uh, yeah, so no, that is, that is a great, great service. And I've applied it you know, in my own life. I've had mentors. And you think that your situation is so bizarre, so crazy, nobody's ever going to understand it. But then you do find somebody because I'm always like, Wait, stop, you know, you're not that special, right? Like no, you're not. something that's happened to you has actually <laughs> happened to somebody years of else. History, like, right? Your experience is not new. And here's the thing, yeah. even if... Look, there are like a million ways to get hurt in this world yeah. in so many ways. There's only a small handful of finite issues that exist in the human psyche for, for what we go, that are a result of what we go through. Right. I mean, you could have a woman who was abused as a child grow up and have post-traumatic stress to the same extent and same symptoms as a guy like me coming home from war. Yep. I can't relate to her story. She can't relate to mine. But that's a big key right there, though. People don't relate just on common experiences, yeah. like the cause of the pain. People relate to pain. They, they go, oh, that person deals with depression, too. They deal with anxiety, too. They don't like to sleep in the dark with the fan on also because they don't like, they also have a problem not being able to see or hear. And they have some sort of post-traumatic stress. I'm talking about myself here. Yeah. <laughs> and I have no shame in that. Yeah. Like, if I can't see, I want to hear. If I can't hear, I want to see. Um, you know, I got my German Shepherd that sleeps, you know, at my door. Like, ain't nothing getting past that thing. But <laughs> oh, mine would let you right in if you threw a tennis ball. He's oh, 120, 120 pounds. You'd be like, okay, see you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the thing is, yeah. people don't have to relate on what caused the pain, but people yeah. will relate on the pain they experience. They go, that person understands me. And that actually, if I can tell you a quick story, that's what changed my life in direction forever. Dave. Uh, right after I met him, he had invited me to come to one of his speeches up in Manhattan, Kansas, right outside of Fort Riley. And I said, Dave, I don't have any money. He said, don't worry, we'll pay your way. Well, I grew up poor, so free is good. And so I took it up on it. <laughs> and I showed up. I'm still in burn bandages. My face is still pretty pink and red from the second degree burns. And right in the middle of his talk, he looks down at me on the front row and points his finger. And he says, Brian, come on up here. Tell him about yourself. Oh, man. So I get up on stage, he says, take two minutes. And so I, I get up there, I say, hey, I'm Brian, I got blown up, I guess I'm still here for a reason, go for it, whatever, I don't know what I said. It was probably the worst motivational speech ever. <laughs> I'm like, this guy is jacked up. <laughs> My life changed when I exited the stage though. And here's what happened. I call this the game changer. It was the one degree shift that completely allowed me to take back control of my mind and my life. This young lady walks up to me, and I don't even know her name to this day. She just starts talking at me. She said, Brian, when I, growing up, I was raped and I was molested and I was abused. She said, my boyfriend was abusive. And she said, uh, I tried to kill myself recently, but I failed suicide. And I'm thinking to myself this whole time, why would you, why is she telling me this? I'm just yeah. caught so off guard. 
But then she said this, she said, you know, Brian, but if you can get through all that, I think I can get through what I'm going through. And I didn't know what happened in that moment. I didn't understand, but something clicked inside of me. And I told Dave that evening back at the hotel, I said, Dave, I don't know what happened tonight, but I have to do this. It was other than fighting for my life in Afghanistan. It was the only time in my life where something came out of me and in in me, something said, I'm going to do this or die trying. I don't care. There's nothing else worth living for. And so for the long, that's what got me into speaking. I got hooked on it because I was meeting people like that. And I never understood what happened until I read a book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Nazi Holocaust prison camp survivor. And this is what he says about suffering. It's like my lifeline. He said, when it comes to suffering, and this is a guy who lost his whole family in the Nazi concentration camps, his pregnant wife, his parents, everybody, and he survived. When it comes to suffering, he said, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. In some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. Well, this is probably seven months after my injury, not even a year yet. I began finding a sense of meaning in my suffering because of that young lady. She told me that I helped her. I didn't mean to. I didn't know how I did. I didn't have any advice. But what I realized years later, she helped me. Yeah. Because I saw it helped her. And she realized, like, she's not going to go home and drink a bottle of pills or put a pistol in her mouth tonight. Right. And that gave a great sense of meaning to my suffering. And I thought maybe that, maybe she was part of the reason this all happened. And that's been reaffirmed over the past 12 years I've been speaking now and over and over and over again. And that was the major key to being able to mentally move past suffering. Yeah, that is so cool. And such an important thing uh, to remember too. And again, like to anybody who's listening, who hasn't reached that point, who, if you know, there's people who are going to listen to this, who are still stuck and strapped in the pain. It doesn't matter if something happened, you know, 20 years ago or five days ago, you know, they're just stuck and they're going, I've been there. I've been in the dark moments. And that's why I love sharing stories like that. Because like we were talking before we started, you know, recording, when I was at that lowest, it was finding people with those stories, people like Dave Reaver, you know, so I think the more people that come forward and you know, share their stories. And just because you had something happen to you and you overcame it doesn't mean you understand how to share that story in a relatable, meaningful manner that's going to help people, right? So the, mm-hmm. the people that can and the people that do, I love that that you do, you know, because it does make a difference. And I bet you she remembers you too. I bet you somewhere that- you I hope I meet her again someday. And she's like, you know, um, there was a time where I was at my lowest and then some guy get up on stage, said something stupid about being blown up, but it hit me. And, you know, I didn't kill myself that night and here I am. Like, you don't know, right? If you're part yeah. of someone else's story and how cool is that? And do you realize, and yeah. I don't know if you caught this, but what happened was the same thing I thought and didn't realize I was thinking when I met Dave. Yeah. He can get through his thing. I can get through mine. He can show me how it is. She thought the same thing mm-hmm. about me. Right. And I, did, I, didn't, I didn't even catch that for like four or five years after I was, I was coming down this road on mine. Yeah, it just valid. It almost validates everything. And I think when you go through something so traumatic and so difficult, a part of the struggle is not understanding why or like, getting frustrated at the pointlessness of it. Like, why did, you know, what am I supposed to do? And so when you get to get pointed, you're like, okay, that's why this happened, you know? And then I think it takes power back from the pain when you find that direction and the purpose. Yeah. And the hard thing about it is a lot of people are thinking, what if I never find a why? 
Yes. And that's a legitimate concern. Because that's terrifying. Next, yeah, because what if I never find it? Yeah. Here's the best way to solve that that I've found. If you're searching for it, keep searching for it. But if you really want to take control of it, start doing something that where you can create meaning in your suffering. Why do I write books and speak? I'm resilient and overcoming hardship. Well, I know about it, but it's also a way that I found it gives meaning to what I've been through because it gives value to other people in a way that I know helps them. Yeah. You see a lot of people come through a bad situation and they end up creating nonprofit organizations and causes that help people who are suffering in that. And they're actually creating meaning. They're not waiting to have, they're not waiting until they happen to stumble upon it if they ever do. Now I've stumbled on it several times. I've been open to it and that's, I can't meet, I can't say that will happen for you right. though. I right. think it will, but I can't say, right. but I've also created meaning out of my suffering and it, it benefits me the same and it yeah. benefits the world the same. So talk about your speaking career now. Um, you, what was, what was the very first talk that somebody specifically sought you out for and said, Brian, I heard about you. I want you to come speak at our event. Yeah, the first one I gave yeah. right after, literally, it was the last day on active duty. And it was, it was Veterans Day of 2007. I spoke at a church. I used to be a part of the youth group when I was in high school in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I came and I spoke. There were actually about 2,000 people there. It was a really big event. And it was, I, only, I had only spoken that one other time at the event with Dave for like two minutes. Mm -hmm. And so I showed up at this event and, you know, I talked about suffering. I talked about my story. I talked about how faith, you know, intertwines with that. And, you know, the struggles we have to maintain or people lose that a lot of times because of the questions they, they don't feel they have answered. Um, and so I found that out of that experience, the, the, the response was, was so strong. It was like an overwhelming reaffirmation you have to figure this speaking thing out. You have to keep like, again, this is the reason you're here. Yeah. Like I didn't have a whole lot of time to get down on myself from the time I was injured to get so deep down in a rabbit hole of meaninglessness. Uh, Cause I met Dave, which led to that talk he brought me to, yeah. which led me to this. And so I, I didn't have a, a huge problem moving forward in life. It was really just figuring out what my next mission looked like. And I had something inside me I wasn't pushing this thing. I was being pulled by it. It still took effort, but it pulls me even today. I'm not pushing the boulder uphill. Yep. Like I'm being pulled uphill by something and it takes effort, but it's pulling me. It's coming out of me. And I didn't know it was there before. And, you know, I, I think somebody who's just trying to push something, I, I would ask them, like, is it, is, do you have a lot of sense of meaning in that? Because I, anything that was deep and meaningful to me that's motivated me, inspired me to do something I never had to push. I've always been pulled by it. And again, it takes effort. I'm not saying it doesn't take effort. Right. I push a lot of things. And, um, but that one major thing is what pulls me. Yeah. And I found that through my greatest pain that I've ever endured. Awesome. So what is one thing that you haven't tried then professionally, maybe that you feel like could be a segue? You speak, you write books. Where do you see this? You know, I would love, I, I've spoken, gosh, I, I speak for it other people's audiences. They bring the people to me. And I've spoken to probably at least a half a million people in live audiences at this point over the past 11 years or so, 12 years. I love that. <laughs> what I would love, and I haven't done it yet. I haven't quite figured out how to get it to happen. Um, though I know it's doable. 
is I would love to have, to have my own live event, 30, 40, 50 people, not real big. Yeah. Um, and just have a live event where I can teach people how to put together their battle plan for their life so they can get from where they are to where they want to be, uh, regardless of where that is in life, because I know how to do that. And I know how to break it down into a one piece of paper that they can easily communicate and articulate and see and, and do and never be lost and not, not have to go, what's my next step? I don't know who I need. I don't know what the next thing to do. Like, no, like I, I I don't, I don't set goals. I create battle plans and it works. And so I I love to set, have a a live event where I do that. And uh, I'm in the works of figuring out how to make those logistically happen. I feel like you could absolutely do that. I feel like if you got off of this interview today and picked a location in your town and put the word out, I think you would have 30 people show up. 50 people at a minimum. I think you would have your 30 people show up and do that. I've yeah. Been, well, I thought about doing it would. non-profit. I thought about yeah. doing it for profit, you know, in just different yeah. ways. So I think based on how I do it, it might determine, well, who shows up and doesn't, you know, if money's a factor, but um, it's life-changing stuff. And so I'm, what I'll tell you, I'll put this out there. I'm looking for somebody who already knows how to throw together live events for businesses. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd be happy to give them a piece of the pie if, if they'll take care of all that that backend stuff, the logistics and all that, like I'll do that if somebody really knows how to do it. So I think there are so many people out there who could step into that. You might be sorry you said that. <laughs> no, I've been looking okay. and I haven't found a good one yet. All right. But I'm on a mission now, dude. I know so many people. We're doing our own giant live event in April for a thousand people. Okay. Um, so I'm learning about who's this. Person? Well, what? So who's your person? <laughs> we're, you know, we're doing it, but we you know we did okay. also hire a uh, a professional event planner to, to yeah. help us with the logistics. Cause there's two parts, right? There's building the audience, they're selling the event and then you have the on ground event planner. Well, and, here, and here's the thing too. I'm not above anything, yeah. but I've, I've discovered and I found it. I know that my best and highest use is at the front of the room on the stage. Right. That's the best place for me to be the most valued people. Yeah. And so it's getting those other people so in you place. Need so the, I can figure that out. Yeah. All right. We're going to stay in touch. I, I love talking to people about what's going on in lives. I'm so glad I asked that question because literally as we're speaking, my brain is thinking, who do I know? How do I do this? And I say this all the time. I love connecting people. And for whatever reason, I never would have believed this years ago, but our network is humongous and they're amazing people who want to get involved and want to help. So now you're on my list and I'm going to help you make this happen. Well, thank you. I'm going to make you a guarantee. Okay. If you're in for it in six months, you're going to be you're going to have at least that 30 or 50 people in the room if you're down with it. Cause I'm going to connect you with those. people. I'm, I'm open to everything. And I'm That's open so to much fun. That, and I love it. And I feel like it's important for you to do that. Um, actually you, you could probably call Dave Reaver and he'd be like, Brian, do this, that, 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 but whatever. Um, I digress. Sorry about that. I get all excited, right? When I hear basic things, it's so much fun. All right. So if people want to find out about you, they want to reach out to you. They want to get one of your books, hire you to speak or come to your first live event that you're running yourself in six months. How do they connect with you? Well, the easiest way to find me is my website, which is very easy to remember. It's blownupguy.com. Just remember, I'm a guy. I got blown up, blownupguy.com. It's, it's infantry easy is what I say. You know, it's like here, front toward <laughs> enemy, like for the Claymore mind. Like, That's this the name idiot. of my book. Yeah, well, it's idiot proof. Like you can't screw this up. <laughs> So it's blownupguy.com. I'm one of thousands of guys, men and women, who've been blown up. I'm just the one who thought it'd be funny to have a website. Right. right. Um, hilarious. So if you want to find me with speaking, I speak for companies and corporations, yeah. associations, churches all over the world. 
and uh, go to blownupguy.com to learn more about that. If you want to learn more about how I get, how I do speaking, how I got into this, I have an online course at speakerblastoff.com. And it's very low barrier to entry. Uh, everything I wish somebody would have taught me from the business yeah. end in the beginning. And so um, Dave taught me how to reach people's hearts and communicate um, the business piece. I, you know, I have different mentors who are strong in different areas. And uh, this is what I wish I would have known. And so if you want to get started on that, you have a message to share, but you just aren't sure how to get started. Yeah. I will go there. Awesome. All right. So one question we love to ask is what drives us here. Um, our backstory is the American dream, you know, defending it because people kept saying that it was dead and gone. And I'm like, well, you know, this country is actually pretty awesome. A lot of people gave a lot for you to be able to say that. So, so we are big proponents of the American dream. And I love to ask you, what is your definition? Because it is different for everybody. How do you define the American dream? Well, I can tell you personally, for me, it's, it's being able to teach people how to stand firm when everything around them is blowing up. That's my mission in life. That's what I do. That's, that's my life message. It's my keynote speech. It's my life message. It's yeah. everything, you know, everyone gets blown up and there's ways to get around those things when it happens. And uh, if we can equip ourselves and get ourselves around the right people, uh, we can do incredible things above and beyond what we go through. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much, A, for your service and B, for taking the time to be with us today. Trust us with your story and your time. Hey, well, thanks for having me. It's been a, a huge privilege. All right, there you have it, everyone. That wraps up another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you got any value out of today's episode or any episode that we've done in the past, all that we ask of you each and every week is to just share this with a friend, tell a friend, uh, share one of your favorite episodes on social media, and of course, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast app. Uh, iTunes goes such a long way in helping us get these stories out there and in front of more people, because quite frankly, they are stories that uh, deserve to be heard. Uh, again, we appreciate you being here today. You can watch the full video interview and see the featured article that we did on Brian Fleming by going to americansnippets.com. Uh, don't forget to follow us on YouTube as well. We publish a lot of uh, content on YouTube that we don't necessarily publish here on the podcast. Uh, and again, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at American Snippets. And, uh, you know, we'll see you next week. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are. <laughs>